this morning. I'm going to be in Job this morning. We were in Job last week, and we were in Job somewhat on Wednesday night. If you can make it on Wednesday nights, come to Wednesday nights. They're usually good. Sometimes they're a little off, but when they're real good, it's like, why didn't we tape it? And that's what we had last week. Just a moment. But I want you to look at Job chapter 13, verse 15. I am not going to do an exposition of this. But I am going to pick up from last week as I speak to you on the subject, In God We Trust. In God We Trust. Job 13 verse 15 says this, Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. As the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God stands forever. And may He teach us from it. Recently, we were all to gather together, not to bring forth emotions, but it is what it is. We were together on a, I guess, a Wednesday morning, and we got to watch at a dearly departed brother's service the folding of the flag. Do you know what the meaning is of the folding of the flag? Did you know there are only 13 folds when it is done? You know, the flag has many names. I would have brought her out today. They're all in my office, my study over there. I kind of have a, my own personal position is this, and since I kind of can do what my own personal position is concerning me, I don't like to put the flag out in church because I want us to remember we're part of another kingdom. But I am also grateful that here we're part of this country. But if you want to go in my office and question about how I feel about the flag, you will go in there and you will see ten. And I invite you to do it after church. Maybe you've never seen the flags I have flown in my office. They're beautiful. A lot of them are Texas. Yeah, I invite you to do that. But there's names for the flag. There's Old Glory. There's the stars and the stripes. There's the red, white, and blue. The stars and the bars. Even the star-spangled banner. The original 13-star version of the flag was first unveiled on June 14, 1777. And that is why June 14th is known as Flag Day. We have all kinds of days now. We have Donut Day, Pie Day, Star Wars Day, which is May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. And in case you were wondering, they have not created Twinkie Day yet, but they are for Mary Jo, and we have April Fool's Day, and that's for atheists. And in case you were wondering, our current 50-star flag has flown since July 4th, 1960, the beginning of Generation X, which is 1960 to 1980. 
at some point in time, a person witnessed on television, all of you, at some point, or in a funeral, or in some kind of event, you saw the folding of the flag. Have you ever noticed how meticulous attention is paid by the honor guard when folding the flag? Because the flag has to be folded exactly 13 times with no red showing at the end. None. And that 13 times is a remembrance of the original colonies and the first 13 stars. But did you know there is a specific meaning for each fold? The next time I do or participate in a military funeral, I will see to it that this is provided. The first fold of the flag symbolizes life. Ours is a nation that is pro-life. Two, the second fold represents a belief in eternal life. The third fold is made in honor and remembrance of veterans. Of veterans who gave their lives in defense of the country in order to help attain peace throughout the world. Number four, the fourth fold is a recognition of the nature of the country's citizens to trust God. It is the nature of our country, not the character. It is the nature of our country to trust God. The fifth fold is a tribute to the United States. A man named Stephen Decatur during the Revolutionary War in 1812 says, Our country in dealing with other countries may she always be right, but it is still our country, right or wrong. Sixth, the sixfold symbolizes where people's hearts lie in keeping with the words of the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The seventhfold pays tribute to the armed forces. After all, it is through the armed forces the United States is protected against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. The eighth fold is a tribute to those who have died and as Psalm 23 specifically says, entered into the valley of the shadow of death. The ninth fold honors womanhood. I could stop right there. The tenth fold is a tribute to fathers. The eleventh fold represents the lower portion of the seal, listen, of King David and King Solomon and glorifies in Judaism the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The twelfth fold represents an emblem of eternity and glorifies in the eyes of God's children, God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Spirit. Three colors, red, white, and blue. But it is the 13th fold. It is the 13th fold that is presented to the loved one in whose honor the flag has been folded after such a ceremony that reminds us of the national motto, In God We Trust. When you think about a loved one who is left remaining and the folding of the United States flag, they're coming and bringing that to that loved one and standing and saluting in honor. The very person that is grieving has been given the symbol of our nation, but bears close to one's own chest the great truth that we as believers know. It is true. In God, we trust. You'll never see it the same again. Isn't that beautiful? When we talk about trust, I have to begin with patience. The first point this morning is entitled, or is, In God We Trust. We want patience, and we want it now. We are a society consumed with instant gratification. It's something takes too long, like counting ballots, we turn to something faster, and there's no time to waste. For whatever reason, we're under the impression that we would be able to get anything we want whenever we want it, and that is, after all, the American way. You can get it if you work for it here. You can get anything you want here in this country if you work hard enough. Even when it comes to the Christian life, we think that it's the push of the button or the click of the mouth or a recitation of some kind of uh, formulaic uh, speech and therefore you have instant holiness, instant humility, instant patience. However, these attributes cannot be acquired instantly for they are not commodities to be bought or sold. They are earned. They are not taught either. They are caught. Patience is the most subtle of virtues and without a doubt it is the most ignored one. Just go to Walmart. Look at all those checkout stands. No one's there. And they put in those quick checkout spots, and everybody's there. They've even done that now at Tom Thumb. And now the line is what? Longer. You can go to McDonald's. You can order a Happy Meal and get a sad sandwich. You can do all that. You can go push a button. Instant, I mean... And so, unfortunately, many people think that patience is most prominently demonstrated by someone who has an easygoing life. Laid back, have an attitude that, you know, they're chilled out, they're on Caribbean time, on the beach, their life's a cruise. But on the contrary, patience is not some passive nuance that has something to do with someone's character. It's an active and a very exhibited virtue. It's a virtue of trust. So write that down. Patience is the virtue of trust. Patience is the virtue of trust. 
To exercise trust implies that you and I are trusting in someone greater than ourselves and no wonder the world is so impatient because after all, those who don't know God have to trust who? Themselves. And their confidence is self-confidence, their esteem is self-esteem, and their reliance is self-reliance. In the world's economy, everything, listen, everything is a commodity in the world economy. And the world, and to the world, the self is the number one consumer. Therefore, when the self wants something, the self does whatever it takes to get it. This is exactly the picture of what took place in the Garden of Eden in chapter 2 of Genesis. God said you can't eat of the tree. You can have everything else, my presence, the fruit of the garden, everything, you just can't eat of the tree. And the accuser came and said, he didn't mean that. I know you desire it. I know it looks good. I know you want it. He didn't say that. He would not deny you anything. Oh, that voice is so loud and clear today. And it is there that the serpent convinced Eve that she should not trust God, but she should place her trust in herself so that she could see as God sees. And guess what? All of the blame fell to the man. It's been that way ever since. I said this the other day. I said in every relationship there's someone right and there's someone wrong. The husband is the one that's always wrong. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, it's the husband's fault. But forsaking her trust in God, she was self-reliant to the point of death. And since that time, Satan has done all he can to sell the lie of instant gratification. Instant gratification. And we're not self-reliant. We as the children of God are reliant upon God. And the very flag we live under in this country is a testament to that. There is no other flag like glory. That's why I say if you can, don't fly a tattered flag. And you think about what it represents. Don't fly it upside down. So, well, that's a sign of distress. It is a sign of distress. But let me tell you something. Our government's in distress, but you're not. Because your trust is in something greater. I notice out there where I live, there's the person that's flying the black flag. And, I, and I'm grateful for this. The rain came. That is, a, that is a red, white, and blue flag that is dyed black. And the black is fading away. And now the stars and bars are coming out. The only thing is have the Texas flag on top. It needs to be changed. I'm praying with the next rain, it's totally done. Because the black flag means no quarter, no mercy, no patience, nothing. We will kill you. And, uh, and we're not going to feed or comfort you. It's death. That's not the American way. It's your freedom to do that. But when you think about what glory means, ultimately our flag means in God we trust. For me to fly it either tattered or the wrong way is to, is to communicate, well, maybe I don't. I would hate to go to California to Torrance and drive in front of the Speaker of the House's house and see some gigantic, beautifully brand new flag flying and then 
say, what a patriotic woman, and then someone drive by my house and say, look at how you have disrespected the flag. You're trying to tell me she's more patriotic than I am? She's a user and an abuser. And the best thing for her would be to pick up a rifle and be sent to the front lines and learn to defend the country. That's what the flag means in God we trust. That's what the veterans went. They went for the flag. But trust in what? Number two, trust God's promises, not your passions. Trust God's promises, not your passions. And I want to use an illustration for this point. And it's an illustration from one of my favorite teachers and authors who has gone home to be with the Lord. And I'm just going to read it to you, his experience. I'm going to read his transcript for this point. God is with His people through the preaching of His Word, whether we have a sense of His presence or not. We need to trust the promises of God, not our feelings. We need to put our trust in the promises of God, not our feelings. And thus he says, An experience I had years ago when I first began teaching back in 1965, I was a professor at a college and on the weekends I would fill vacant pulpits. And there was a church across the border in Ohio where the minister became terminally ill and could no longer preach. And so for several months I preached in in that church for his people. And I got a call one Saturday night and they said, "We we just heard from the hospital that it is likely our pastor is not going to live through tomorrow. He says, I knew how much these people loved him. What a tremendous burden of pain and grief this was going to be upon them to learn of his imminent demise. The next day we were scheduled to have the Lord's Supper and how I prayed my heart out that Saturday night. I said, Lord, these people need encouragement. They need a word from you that will lift them up from their despair that their eyes may be upon you in the midst of this crisis, the death of their shepherd. And the next day I got to church, he says, and I tried to preach my heart out. And everybody in this room he's speaking, and everybody in this room who's ever preached a sermon knows what it is like to lay an egg. You want to preach, and you're preaching, and nothing is working. I mean, it was horrible, he says. One of the worst sermons I ever preached in my life. Then I led the congregation through the Lord's Supper, and I was overcome with a profound sense of the absence of God, it was awful, he says, so that when I pronounced the benediction, instead of going back to the back of the church to greet the people, I wanted to run out the door, find a hole to jump in, and hide. I was so embarrassed because I knew I had let them down. And guess what happened? I never had a response like this where one person after another came out of the sanctuary thunderstruck, and they grabbed me by the hand with both hands and said, Thank you, Pastor. I've never known the presence of the Lord like I knew 
this morning. And one of them after another came out of there, and I'm thinking, where these people were these people in the same service I was in? I said to my wife, Vesta, on the way home, I'm going to make a vow today, honey. I, and I'm going to stop being a sensual Christian. And from now on, I'm going to trust in the presence of God based, on what, based not on what I feel, but what, I, but what He has promised. He promised to be there. He promises to attend the preaching of the Word that you give. Live by it. See to have the virtue of trust. It requires patience. But the trust must be in the right thing. If it is of you, it is sensual. If it is of God, it is sanctified. I told you last week I did not want to be here. I knew what was laid on my heart. I parked my truck so when church was over, I could flee. All of those things I did. I didn't read this illustration until this morning and I said that illustrates perfectly the point. Even when you don't feel like doing it, trust God. Trust Him. We don't remember all of His promises, but He does not forget them. Faithful is He who calls you, and He will do it, the Bible says. Trust in God's promises, not your passions. And then let me now give you the application with number three. Trust. Trusting in God through suffering. That is really where the rubber hits the road for all of us. No one wants to suffer. No one wants to suffer the loss of a right. No one wants to suffer the loss of health. No one wants to suffer the loss of security. No one wants to suffer the loss of, of, of comfort, of consolation, of a loved one. No one wants to suffer. So let me show you this. When I begin with you, Job 13, 15 says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. These are the famous words of Job that summarize what our posture should be like all the time before God when we suffer. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. I will hope. And it is an instruction on how to maintain this posture comes from a surprising source in this text. Remember I told you there were three yard birds in Job. Yard bird one, yard bird two, and yard bird three. Well, when they're done talking, another person speaks. His name is Elihu. You have Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have spoken thus far as the comforters of Job. Ha ha. And now they have exited stage left, and now a brand new younger man enters stage right with burning anger 
against Job because he perceives that Job has justified himself before God and his friends have never found an answer as to how to answer Job. And so commentators kind of wonder, who is this Elihu character? Who is he? Well, um, I printed it off and didn't get it. It doesn't matter. Whatever he is, he is adding something to the conversation. And he gives four speeches from Job 32 through 37, of which at no point does Job respond ever. John Calvin says, the problem of suffering's answer is in Elihu. Elihu begins well and he ends badly. He begins by teaching us something about the new purpose, about something new about the purpose of suffering, but he ends repeating the same old story. You're suffering because you're a sinner. God did this to you. What's sad, but it is true, we never believe that about ourselves, but we're willing in knowing that it is true, God does not do that to His children, because He cannot. He will not, but we sure hope He does it to others. As the only explanation for why we cannot answer why this is happening. Well, I'm going to give you an answer to that today. He teaches us this simple truth. He's a crooked stick that hits a straight lick, Elihu is. It's in the Scripture. We're to learn from it. I'm going to show you where he teaches it. Three things, trusting God through suffering. And the first thing he teaches us is, number one, trials are not a reason to question God's character. And I warn you as your friend, with no threat, trials are not a reason to question God's character. There is nothing that I can think of that will get somebody more hot and bothered that knows the God Jacob, of Jacob, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who walks with Christ, knows the voice, reads the scripture that will bring about a righteous anger than for a person to question God's character. But it happens all the time. God can't be God and let Joe Biden be president. God can't be God and allow abortion to continue. God can't do all these... What can God do? Don't ask what He can't do. What can He do? I'm going to show you something. Trials are not a reason to question God's character. If I were to single out one particular verse from Elihu's speech, go over here to Job 34 verse 12. I want you to look at it. Job 34 verse 12. It says right here in the Bible, are you ready? I want you to highlight this. Surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Whatever the answer to the problems of pain and suffering is, which we know what it is, but that's not today, it cannot be an answer at the expense of the character of God. 
when you just view God as a God of love and you separate that character as the preeminent character of who God is and, and make all of the other traits suffer or be diminished, you have basically misidentified who God is because if there's any overreaching character trait of God, it's His holiness. But it is on the same par as His love and of His delight and of His passion and truthfulness. We cannot look at the difficulties and the trials that we face at the expense of God's justice, at the expense of His integrity, and at the expense of His righteousness. Difficult times do not bring question to God's character. It brings question to ours. It is an uncompromising truth. You cannot compromise this truth. Trials are not a place to question the character of God. Period. There is no compromise. I don't know about that. There's no compromise. I don't know. Our God is all-knowing. So that doesn't fit either. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, the Bible says. Right here in this passage. Of a truth, He will not do wickedly. It deals with the character of God, but also it has to do with the love of God within His character. And the answer to the problem of suffering is not merely that God is sovereign. God cannot sin. Everything that God does, He does out of the principle of the character of His goodness. And when we suffer, we can't question that because it is done out of the principle of His character. I would suggest here that Elihu does two more things to help us understand the problem of suffering. Not just teaching us that trials are not a reason to question God's character, but simply that suffering is one, instructive, and two, the reason God permits it is to teach us something. So number two, one, is trials are not a reason to question God. Number two, trials teach us something about who we are. In the prologue of the book of Job, we have an assessment of Job's character. The Bible says he was a godly man. He shunned evil. He was in every way a model believer. But that doesn't mean to say that he was sinless throughout his course of the book. And in the course of his suffering, something of Job's sinful character begins to emerge in a way that isn't flattering to him. If you squeeze something hard enough, something's going to come out. But here's what I want you to understand. Turn over to Job 36, 15. Elihu captures this very clearly. God delivers the afflicted by their afflictions and opened their ears by adversity. You know what that means? God uses suffering to lead us to see something of ourselves that we cannot see otherwise. Suffering can open our ears and can teach us things about ourselves. It reveals what we're capable of. And in the course of a trial and in our response to suffering, 
It can manifest things about you and I that we wouldn't have believed was even possible. Sin manifests itself in the course of these trials and it, even if it isn't the cause of it, even if the sin that is manifested in the trial is not the cause of the trial. And when difficulty comes our way, our response isn't always a good one. It's not. We respond with unjust anger or accusation. We question the goodness of God. We question God's right to treat us this way. We forget that we are His creatures to mold and to shape as it pleases Him. We are the clay. He is the potter. When that happens, we take up our cross and follow Jesus. We hope. Isn't that what He said at Caesarea Philippi? Take up your cross and follow Me. Deny yourself. Deny yourself your rights, your privilege, and your status. Whatever is God's will and follow Christ. Is that really how you live? The other day during the election, uh, there was one of the Senate seats was overturned in Ohio. J.D. Vance won the seat and beat the incumbent, I believe. And I watched the concession speech, which I thought was extremely American. The Democrat lost. And he said, why is it, on national TV, he says, why is it that if a Democrat wins, the election is legitimate. And if a Republican loses, the election was lost by scandal. It was cheated. He said, I am here to tell you, I concede the election. I lost to my Republican opponent. I wish him the best and I will serve him in any capacity or way he wishes. He is legitimately elected your next senator. I thought, wow. But he stated a very unpopular truth that people say. If your candidate doesn't win, the election must have been stolen. We are above that, people. We're only given one vote. They haven't put us in charge of the ballot machines. If you want to get involved in that, then you go volunteer and be part of the, the process. Run for office. But I want to tell you something. Ultimately, it is about, I don't want these people to be in power because if for them to be in power, I'm going to be forced to deny myself by suffering. And God has commanded that you deny yourself without suffering. And it came from the mouth of the man who suffered for the whosoever will believe and took sin upon himself, which no one has ever suffered like that, ever and ever will. While it is true that trials can bring lights to lessons that you otherwise would not have learned about your sin, even this can be considered a sign of God's mercy and grace because I'm going to tell you why. God will never give you anything you cannot bear up under. How do you know? How can I say that? Because I know. Do you know what makes Navy SEALs Navy SEALs? It's because they don't ring the bell. You go to Navy SEALs training, 
You may have a guy that's a second lieutenant in the Navy or a, or a Marine Corps captain and a guy that's a brand new seaman that is a, an enlisted man. When you go into Navy SEAL training, there's no ranks. You're training, you're, a, you're in training. And all you gotta do is make it through training without ringing a bell. And they teach you that you can do more than you think you can do. They teach you that you're stronger than you think you are. You're smarter than you think you are. You can endure more. And they do everything to push you, not out, but to push you to believe. And most will never, if not almost all, will never follow through because they just don't trust the process. And that's why they are an elite group of soldiers. Uh, whatever they are, they're SEALs. Our relationship with God is the same thing and too many are ringing the bell. And you're disconnected from the harvest field because there is the idea that somehow you're going to have to deny yourself. Well, guess what? That's exactly what you have to do. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, no man has ever left mother or father, whatever this, to follow me. And all he asks you is to take up his cross and follow him. That's all. Let the dead bury the dead. Come, follow me. And while it is true that these can bring the author, but there, there's so much grace and, and, and so much mercy in following Christ. And of course, we'll see this with Job here in a moment because after Elihu is done speaking, you have the, the tempest appears. There's no response and the whirlwind shows up and now God straightens it out. Those four guys were all idiots and now God's going to speak. But I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through 7 as I land the plane. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. The author of Hebrews talks about the discipline aspect of trials. I think it's a pretty logical conclusion to say the author here is Paul, but that has been debated forever. It doesn't matter. We know it is the Holy Spirit, ultimately. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor, the, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Don't ring the bell. God is treating you as a son. And for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? What a magnificent truth. You see, God is not punishing. God is not punishing you as though you were an unbeliever. He picked Job because Job was a godly man. He didn't pick him because he's some pawn in a big old machine in the vast cosmos where there's no rhyme or reason. He chose the best man at the time walking on the earth to be tested by the most evil thing to ever come out of heaven. And he defeated him.
when you face trials, God is treating you like a son. He's treating you like a daughter. Yeah, it's painful. It hurts. But it hurts because you're His children. If you weren't His children, you wouldn't have it. You'd have nothing like that. All you would have is your acreage, your accounts, your money, your assets, everything else that makes you comfortable in this world. Everything else. But to have Him is the pearl of great price. He loves you and through discipline He is conforming you to be more and more like the image of His Son Jesus Christ. And through trials, God is leading us to appreciate something about His mercy and His grace. So the three things I've shown you here are trials are not a reason to question the character of God. It teaches us something about who we are and it teaches us something about who God is. I didn't give you that last one, but that was the last part. It teaches us about who God is. So then conclusion, I want to give you the takeaway. Here it is. Rest in God. I know that's theologically profound. Wow. Rest in God. Elihu stresses the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God means that everything God wants to happen, happens without the interference of anything. And what He doesn't want to happen will not happen without the interference of anything. He is completely in control. That is a character trait, the sovereignty of God, that is based upon His nature, which is His all-powerfulness, His all-goodness, His all-knowing, and His ever-present, and the nature of His wisdom. Because you see, wisdom means this. Wisdom means that God always has the best end in sight and does the best thing to bring the best into realization. That's wisdom. That's not a character trait. That's a nature trait. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-good, all-wise. And so He's sovereign. That's why we're going to sing in a minute, praise Him, praise Him. Jesus, our blessed Redeemer, sing, O earth, His wonderful, whatever proclaims, however it goes. The sovereignty of God. Job, too, believed in God's sovereignty. But what are the implications of God's sovereignty? I want you to get these down and I'm gonna, then we're done. I want you to listen. And some of you, this, you're going to feel like I'm stepping personally on your toes. But I want to tell you something. I don't come here to step on your toes. I need you more than you know is my friends. But I have this thing inside of me that's a calling to tell the truth. 
And I really want you to hear these words. If I said them last week, you wouldn't have heard them, but you can hear them now. So I want you to hear these words that I say, and I want you to write them down. We do not have the right to have the answer for all of our suffering. We do not have the right to have all the answers for our suffering. I think Elihu begins well and identifies an area of difficulty in Job's struggle for answers. Job was a godly man. He was not a sinless man, but Job believed himself a little more righteous than perhaps he was. But he proved he was the elect of God. He proved that greater is he that was in him than he that was in the world. He points forward to the cross. He was of the elect of Israel. And he is not the writer of the book, by the way. Job didn't write the book of Job. An observer wrote it. It's all Hebrew poetry, which is the worst kind of Hebrew to study. It's all Hebrew poetry. But it is one of the greatest literary writings in the world, the book of Job. But over the course of his speeches, Elihu is blustering and brash. He does, not, he does teach us, however, something about suffering as a way God instructs us, as a way to bring about a fresh realization of who we are, who God is, and what's life about. So look in your Bible now at Job 28, verse 12, and I want to tell you a story. Job 28, verse 12. I want to make sure you write this down. Mark this. Job asks a question. Where shall wisdom be found? Where shall God's best ends and God's means, the best means, be found to bring to realization the best of God. And Job answers it. God. Wisdom is found in God. Listen, submitting to God, humbling ourselves before God, submitting to His ways. Trials remind us that His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. And when we suffer, that is when we rest in Him. Years ago, a very strange phenomenon began to happen in the United States of America. You would see at a National Football League game a magnificent flag be furled out that now you know the meaning of it's folding and people would kneel and it was atrocious it was anti-patriotic it was unsportsmanlike but it was free in this country you can do that having freedom like that entitles you to use that freedom. Doesn't mean it's right. 
And it doesn't necessarily make the person wrong. But it's definitely wrong for me. A lot of times we look at those things and we think of what in the world is going on? You notice they don't do that now. That was just a response. And that was just, that was just the culture we were in and we thought, and, and the culture's already changed. The new thing now is whether you're a boy born that way or a girl born that way or what you're going to be. Are you a he, she or a him, her? which I guess would make you a shim. I don't know. And not to, not, to, not to just, but where's the truth anymore? So let me tell you something about that in closing. So last week came here pretty much, you know, didn't have a message, but I, there's one thing I cannot do, and that is I cannot, I cannot constrain that which is in me. And so there was somewhat of a loggerhead the other day coming here. Wasn't mad at anyone. Uh, those that ate dinner with me the night before would have said, you know what, he was just fine. Nobody got upset. Kelly didn't get mad at me. The dogs didn't get mad. Truett, Care Grace, Mike didn't get mad at me. Mike wouldn't even know how to get mad. He's so sweet. Sugar doesn't dissolve on him. By the way, happy birthday. He's 25. And, uh, um, and uh, uh, so let me, let, I had a great wedding with, Ty and, and Katie and Moose and everybody else there. It was fun. They didn't get out late because of me. And, uh, and I'm glad I saw you because I got to mail your marriage license. And, uh, and, uh, um, but I was beat up. I left here, went straight home, broken, looking for a bed truck, bread truck to drive, hoping to be run over by the train on the way. I was beat up. Thought I had done something wrong that I went over there and opened the offering box for you to take your offering home. That's just a little bit of self-pity, which I despise. So Monday, or Tuesday, or Wednesday, no, Monday, horrible day. Tuesday, horrible day. Wednesday, not quite so horrible. One thing that was happening, my blood sugar was completely off the charts. You can lose the weight. That, that disease has no mercy. And that was one of the things going on with me. But listen to this quickly. So I go to Denton, get my hair cut like I need it. The reason it looks like this is because I keep trying to cut it myself. And then I have to go pay someone to fix it. <laughs> and I just need to let it grow out because Genevieve said I'm prettier when my hair's longer. And since Genevieve's pretty, I guess she knows. So I go and I get my hair cut. And I go to Bucky's. Now all of you look at me. I go to Bucky's. Putting gas in my car, 279 with car wash. I walk in to Bucky's, owned by AM, you know, that's Aggie. Walk in, have on a white shirt, blue jeans, my R.M. Williams, uh, Chelsea boots, nothing on me, says pastor, preacher, minister, uh, holy dude, nothing. I walk right in the double doors, and there's a black man about where uh, Rick is, and he goes, Whoo, look at that white hair! And he, this man had no hair, and he was black, and his whoo gave it away. And he was dressed in a blue pants, had a white shirt on, beautiful yellow tie that went like this, went like that, had a cup of coffee. He said, how old are you? Everybody else going, welcome to Bucky's. Be quiet. Be quiet. Welcome to Bucky's. Be quiet. 
I walked over there. I said, how old do you think I am? I said, he said, 55. I said, I'm 50. I was born in 1972. He said, I'm 62. I was born in 1960. He said, I saw you pull up outside gassing up your car. And I heard in my head, you are a man of God. And I said, well, I am a pastor. And I pulled out my card and I gave it to him. He said, God knows the difficulty you've been in. God knows how hard it has been for you. And God has given you all the wisdom that you need. And in December, He's going to flip your ministry. Not only with the provision, but the how and the when. Because God has seen that though you have stumbled, you have not fallen. And He has seen that you will rise up on wings of eagles. And so I declare to you from Numbers chapter 6, verse 34, may the Lord bless you, may the Lord keep you, May the Lord make His countenance shine upon you and give you peace. I was stupefied. I said, who are you? He said, my name is Pastor Miles. What do you do, Pastor Miles? He said, I run the Arlington Outreach down in Arlington feeding families that have no money. I said, well, I came to Bucky's to get rid of some coffee let me do that, and I want to come outside and talk to you some more about it. So I went and got rid of my coffee, and I came back outside, and he was standing there. Now, you know, I'm still me. And I said, when I was in seminary back in the late 90s, there was a ministry called Mission Arlington. He said, oh, yeah, Tilly Bergen, out of First Baptist Church Arlington, Charles Wade pastor of the church, president of Baptist General Convention. Tech. I said, this man knows the trade. He said, we're right next door. And he said, by the way, you probably ought to say a prayer for Miss Tilly. Never met her in my life. You ought to say a prayer for Miss Tilly. Her husband died last month. And she was back there Monday morning serving the poor. And we're just alongside helping them. Maybe if we can feed 50 people a day. And I've re I was going to go have myself have some old oriental medicine done, go get my shoulders cupped because I've been having trouble, this torn rotator cup. And I took my go get this shoulder fix and I gave it to him. And he said, God bless you. And I went back to my car and I watched him walk to the west side of the parking lot at Bucky's. And I never saw him again. I never saw the car move. I never saw anything. And it reminded me of a time when our backyard caught on fire. And about an anchor of grass was burnt. And three men came out from over the barbed wire fence and helped put out that fire. We saw no car. We didn't know who they were. We never saw their faces. We never saw them again. And we just kind of in secret said, were these angels unaware that the Bible says? So I drive off forgetting I just bought a car wash and I'm going to the pet supply store to go talk to somebody. And I walk into PetSmart 
And there's a woman setting up something right there. This is Wednesday. Setting up something right there. And she goes, hello. I go, howdy. Best thing I ever learned at a and Howdy. And there was a man checking out. And he looked at me and he said, you must be from Texas. I was like, I didn't, smith, I didn't feel like a smarty pants at the moment. Someone just said something to me that didn't contradict Scripture. I said, yes, sir, I am. Did my accent give it away? He said, I just want to tell you, God bless you. And I thought, Lord, what are you about to do? Folks, I know what I'm talking about. And I know what I'm talking about because I have the marks. And I'm here to help you walk through it. Go home and fly your flags. Clean them up. And when your kids come by, your friends come by, you teach them and you point to that flag. And you tell them, in God we trust. For even if they slay me, I will follow you because God will bring His consolation. Amen? Let's stand.